from the Southeast Florida studios of the law firm Tripp Scott in Fort Lauderdale. This is Politics and Sunshine, a continuing series of interviews with local and national subject matter experts tackling the issues that make you stand up. In this episode, Trip Scott CEO Ed Poswali talks to national pollster Scott Rasmussen. Here's your host, Ed Poswali. Today we're again joined by our friend, the well-known, well-renowned national pollster Scott Rasmussen. Scott, welcome. Great to be with you, Ed. Lots of things to talk about these days. Yeah. So let's start with the biggest one. What is the current status of the 2024 presidential race? You know, it's always about the incumbent. So let's start with President Biden. Uh, One of the things that's really surprising in the debate today is that people are feeling, I I don't want to say better about the economy, but less pessimistic. You know, right now, 25% of voters tell us their their own personal finances are getting better. 37% say they're getting worse. That's a negative 12. And you might say, well, that's not a very good number. And it's not. But last November, in the midterm elections, it was negative 29. People are beginning to say, yeah, maybe it's not great, but it's not as bad as it was. Today, 27% say their income is keeping up with inflation. Last fall, it was just 18%. So when you see better economic news like this, you would normally say the president's job approval rating is going to go up. I mean, that's just the way the world works. President Biden, in my polling, for the first time in months, fell below 40% to 39% this week. I think what's going on is there's a counterweight to this good economic news. And it has something to do with the ethical cloud that's being raised around President Biden. Um, It's not that people are paying attention. Only 18% of voters are really following the details of the Hunter Biden story. Fewer than half know about what some of the whistleblowers have said. But there's a question I've been asking since the 90s, which is, is this politician more ethical, less ethical, or about as ethical as his peers? And for Joe Biden, the number who say he's at least as ethical as most politicians, that's fallen six points in the last couple of months. So all of a sudden, we're seeing better economic news, but poorer perceptions of the president. That creates a, you know, an interesting dynamic heading into 24 before you even get into the Republican side. And so let's turn our attention to the Republican side. President Trump uh, was indicted uh, again for a third time. Did you see any impact at all with respect to that indictment? No, it's, it, I think it's a little bit of, well, he was indicted before. It's no longer something really dramatic. Uh, what we did see with President Trump is from January of 2021 until early this year, until actually until early last year, we saw perceptions of him and his ethics fall pretty significantly. But they've stabilized and they're not going down any further. And what's really fascinating is if you look at the ethical perceptions of Biden and Trump side by side, well, they've fallen about the same amount since President Biden took office. So you know, I think we're at the point of diminishing returns on these indictments. Now, if he gets convicted, if other things come out, that might change the dynamic. But right now, we're not seeing it. And initially, when President Trump was originally indicted the first time and then the second time, 
a lot of Republicans uh, rallied to his aid, and you saw a bump in the polls. Did you see any corresponding bump this third time, or does that diminishing return also impact on the positive side? Yeah, we're not seeing an impact, a bounce this time. And I should point out, it's not unusual to have that kind of of response. You know, when Bill Clinton was facing his challenges in the 90s, um, his ratings went up among Democrats. So that's just part of the, hey, you guys can't pick on him. We can say bad things about him, but you can't. Uh, But right now with President Trump, we're not seeing that on this third indictment. What do you see some of the issues in some of your polling across the country being? And do we see the economy, foreign affairs, potentially abortion or school choice or what? You know, Ed, when we, we, every week we go out and ask our national audience, what's the most important issue? We ask them in an open-ended question so they can tell us whatever it might be. Always, always, always. The number one issue is something about the economy. At some points in the past few years, it's been supply chains. It's inflation, but it's always a concern about the economy. I will say that from the beginning of this year until now, what we're seeing is a little bit of a decline in the number of people naming the economy as number one. And that's consistent with the idea that things aren't quite as bad. There is nothing that is the number two issue. There are things that week to week pop up, but there's nothing that is even close. So what this tells me, and this is not a surprise, James Carville talked about it in 1992, and he's still right today. It's the economy, stupid. When I look at 2024, I tell Republican audiences and Democratic audiences and whoever will listen that if it's morning in America next year, if we have an economy like Ronald Reagan did in 1984, Democrats are going to have a great year. But I'm not an economist. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, The reverse is also true. If we have a big recession next year, well, then Republicans are going to have a great night no matter what they do. From what I gather, we're likely to be in between those scenarios, somewhat of a middling economy. You know, people, some good indicators, some concerns, some inflation, people working. If that happens, that tells us once again, we're going to be watching close races in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And that's where other issues come into play. And I do think one of the issues that is likely to have an impact if we're in that toss-up situation is education and the role of government versus the role of parents in that process. And where do you see the feeling in the country today about the respective roles between teachers and school districts versus parents? Well, three out of four voters say that parents are primarily responsible for raising their children, for passing on the values. So that's a very important thing. They respect teachers. There's an appreciation of the great work that teachers do. And so they want to rely on that expertise, but parents ultimately are seen as as accountable. So on a on a national basis, um, you know what what a Republican might hope for is an opponent like uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe in uh, in Virginia the last cycle, where you know he said, "I don't want parents telling their uh, telling the schools how to educate their children." No, parents want to have that control. Having said that. There are a number of particular issues, you know, some around the transgender debates, some around other curriculum matters that it's easy to get caught up in and perhaps get too focused on the negative without focusing on the bigger picture. And that's where some danger lies. So the bigger picture, in my mind, would be 
the generic approval or disapproval of school choice options like charter schools and potentially some voucher or, or scholarship programs. Right. And if you're talking about that, the first thing you have to remember, and this is one of the issues, people who are wrapped up in it know all the subtle differences between education savings accounts and vouchers and charter schools. Most voters don't. Only 8% of voters talk politics every day. What they have is a general sense that parents should have the choice in whatever way it works out. And by the way, it's been great for people who hold that view. A lot of states have passed school choice programs this year, have expanded other educational options. And by the way, 40% of the parents with kids in public schools say they are open to other options. That's something we never would have seen before the pandemic. But Ed, as always, there's a flip side of the story. The flip side is when you pass something like this, support falls. You know, I first noted this earlier this year when Iowa passed their school choice program. Numbers fell, support for it fell dramatically. Why? Because the voices in opposition just screamed the loudest and raised all the possible objections. I think if you're an advocate for having parents in control of these things, the lesson is keep selling. Now, Florida has done something. And again, a lot of states are following the lead of Florida on this and other issues. But the same lesson holds. Just because you pass a law doesn't mean it's there forever. Doesn't mean people like it. Doesn't mean the fact that it was popular the day before it was passed means it will be popular the day after. Um, The reality is, how does it work? Next year, when graduation comes, we should be seeing lots of stats, the earliest indicators of how this is working. And two years down the road, we'll see more. And always, 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 you need to talk about the benefits. Because you know what? People don't, when it's it's their kids, it's about the results. It's not about politics. In fact, one of the most important findings on school choice and on education issues generally is that parents, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, tend to have similar views on most things. It's the people without kids in schools that get into the disagreements. Right. So the idea of locking a lower income student into a failing school, that has resonance, but that still needs to be continued to the benefits, the delivery and the promise of charter schools, the delivery and the promise of vouchers that needs to continue to get both get real results and to continue that message needs to continue to get out. That's right. Look, people want to help that child in a low-income situation, get to a better school, get a better education, have a better life. They want to believe that a charter school program or something else will do that. But ultimately, you have to prove that it does. And you tell me, does the polling show that generally those kinds of educational choices really are left to the parent? Yes, absolutely. And look, that is the key. Again, three out of four voters nationwide believe parents are primarily responsible for decisions about their child's future. That applies to education and everything else going on. They don't want a government agency taking over. They respect and love their teachers. They want to find ways to make things work. But it is parents who have that responsibility. You know, I've got two grown kids. I can tell you about the sense of it. Everybody who's ever raised children can. That's what you want to see. You want to make sure your children get a good chance and that others have the opportunity to share in it. So if you were advising, say, the Republicans on the one side 
you would say, continued supporting school choice and options, but still respecting the role of teachers in the process. You could be against teachers unions, but you have to be respectful and talk to quality teachers. You have to find that balance. Exactly. You know, and rather than getting hung up on the details of what is being taught somewhere, focus on the parents having that choice. Focus on a positive, upbeat message that we trust parents to raise their children, to want the best for their children. That's where we want to go. And how would you advise Democrats, given the polling data itself, how would you advise Democrats considering the fact that a large support of money and and otherwise come from teachers unions? How do they thread that needle? Look, the reason this issue can work for a long term for Republicans is because the Democrats are in a bind on this issue. I mean, African-American parents want school choice. Democratic parents want school choice. The most radical progressives in the Democratic Party want choice when it comes to their own kids. So that creates a problem, not just financial support, but your financial and organizational support comes from an organization that is at odds with public opinion, then you have a challenge. I would advise Democrats to figure out a way to to start supporting choice, but that's going to come at a terrible cost. And they've got to be willing to pay that price if they're going to do that. Exactly right. Um, And look, both parties have issues like this, but it's really important to recognize it. And ultimately, we live in a land where governments derive their authority from the consent of the governed. If voters want to make sure they have that choice, that's where the nation will head. Scott, as always, do appreciate your insights and the information, the interpretive information one could take away from getting a snapshot of how people are feeling across the country. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Ed. Look forward to chatting again. Politics and Sunshine is a production of the Fort Lauderdale law firm Trip Scott, serving Florida and beyond for over 50 years. A reminder that this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute legal or professional advice. No user should act on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without obtaining proper legal or other professional advice specific to their situation. Please be sure to like and share this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of Trip Scott's Politics and Sunshine.